The sermon which I am preaching this morning, in a sense, is not a usual kind of sermon, but it is a sermon, and an important subject, nevertheless, because the issue that I will be discussing today is one of the most controversial issues confronting our nation. I'm using it as a subject on which to preach why I oppose the war in Vietnam. Now let me be clear in the beginning that I conceive the war as an unjust evil and futile war. I preach to you today on the war in Vietnam because my conscience leaves me no other choice. The time has come for America to hear the truth about this tragic war. In international conflict, the truth is hard to come by because most nations are deceived about themselves. Rationalizing and the incessant search for scapegoats or the psychological cataracts that blind us to our sins. But the day has passed for superficial patriotism. He who lives with untruth lives in spiritual slavery. Freedom is still the bonus we receive for knowing the truth. Yet shall the truth be known. Jesus said, and the truth shall set you free. Now I've chosen to preach about the war in Vietnam because I agree with Dante that the hottest place in hell are reserved for those who in a period of moral crisis maintain their neutrality. There comes a time when silence becomes betrayal. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformance through which one's own bosom and in surrounding world. Moreover, when the issue at hand seems as perplexing as they often do in the case of this dread, dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. <clears throat> but we must speak. We must speak with all humility and in the appropriate to our limited vision. We must speak, and we must rejoice as well. For in all our history, there has never been such a momentous dissenting during a war by the American people. Polls reveal that almost 15 million Americans explicitly opposed the war in Vietnam. Additional millions cannot bring themselves around to support it, and even those millions who do support the war are half-heartedly confused and debt-ridden. This reveals that millions of those who move beyond the philosophizing of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of firm dissent, based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history, now, of course, one of the difficulties in speaking about today grows the fact that there are those who seek to equate dissent with disloyalty. It's a dark day in our national when high-level authorities will seek to use every method to silence dissent. But sometimes something is happening. The people are not going to be silenced. The truth must be told, and I say that those who are speaking are seeking to make it appear that anyone who opposes the war in Vietnam is a fool or a traitor or an enemy of our soldiers in a person 
that has taken a stand against the best of our tradition. Yes, we must stand and we must speak. Have moved to speak the betrayal of my own silence and to speak from the beginning of our hearts. And I have called for radical departure from the destruction of Vietnam. Many people have questioned me about the wisdom of my past. At the heart of their concerns, the query has often loomed large and loud. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voice of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. And so this morning I say to you, they do. Ladies and gentlemen, excerpts from the speech of Dr. Martin Luther King, April 30th, 1967, Riverside Church, New York. Why I opposed the war in Vietnam. This sermon is not addressed to Hanoi or to the National Liberation Front. It is not addressed to China or to Russia, nor is it addressed to attempt to overlook the ambiguity of the total situation and the need for a collective solution to the tragedy, tragedy of Vietnam. Nor is it an attempt to make North Vietnam of the National Liberation Front paragons of virtue nor to overlook the role they must play in successful resolution of the problems. This morning, however, I wish not to speak with Hanoi and the National Liberation Front, but rather to my fellow Americans who bear the greatest responsibility and enter a conflict that has exacted a heavy price on both continents. Now, since I am a preacher by calling, I suppose it is not surprising that I have seen major reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. There is a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed that there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, and new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched the program broke as it was. Some idle politicians playing off a society going mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive seduction tools. And you may not know, you may not know it, my friends, but it is estimated that we spend $500,000 to kill each enemy soldier, while we spend only $53 a year person classified as poor, and much of that $53 goes for salaries to people that are not poor. So I was increasingly 
compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and attacked it as such. Perhaps the most tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hope of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and die in an extraordinarily high proportion relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black youth men who had been crippled by society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negroes and white boys on television as they killed and died together for a nation that has been unable to seat themselves together in the same schoolroom. So we watched them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of poor villages, but we realized that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago or Atlanta. Now I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even greater, deeper level of awareness. For it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years especially the last three summers, as I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men. I have told them that the Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problem. I have tried to offer men my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. For they ask and write me, so what about Vietnam? They ask if our nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve this problem, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their question hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundred thousand tumbling under my voice, I cannot be silent been a lot of applauding over the last years. They applaud our total movement. They applaud me, America, and most of its newspapers applaud me in Montgomery, and I stood before thousands of Negroes getting ready to ride from my house with bombs and said, we can't do it this way. They applaud us in the sit-in movement. We, nonviolent, dedicated to sit-in at lunch counters. They applaud us on the Freedom Riders. When we accepted blows without retaliation, they praised us in Albany and Birmingham and Selma, Alabama. Oh, the press was so noble in its applause and so noble in its praise when I was saying be nonviolent toward Bull Connor. I was saying be nonviolent toward Selma, Alabama, segregationist sheriff. Jim Clark, there's something strangely consistent about a nation that presses that will praise you when you say we are violent toward Jim Clark, but will curse you and damn you when you say be not violent toward little brown Vietnamese children. There's something wrong with that press. As if the weight of such a commitment to the life and health of America were not enough, another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1964. And I cannot forget that the Nobel Peace Prize was not just something 
taking place, but it was a commission, a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the brotherhood of man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national agencies. But even if they were not present, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry is to make a peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I'm speaking against the war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for conservatives? Have they forgotten that my ministry is obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them? What then can I say to the Viet Cong or to the Castro or to the Mao? As if faithful ministry to the Jesus Christ, can I threaten them with death or must I not share with them my life? Finally, I must be true to the nation or creed is that vocation of censorship and brotherhood. And because I believe that the Father is deeply concerned, especially for his suffering and helplessness and outcast children, I come today to speak for them. And as I ponder the madness of Vietnam and search within myself for ways to understand and respond, it's sad, not on the military government of Saigon, but simply of the people who have been under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them, too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution until some attempt is made to know these people and hear their broken cries. Now let me tell you the truth about it. They must see America as strange liberators. Do you not realize that the Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after a combined French and Japanese occupation? And incidentally, this was before the Communist Revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh. And this is a little-known fact, that these people declared themselves independent in 1945. They quoted our Declaration of Independence in their document of freedom, and yet our government refused to recognize them. President Truman said they were not ready for independence, so we fell victim to a nation at that time of the same deadly arrogance that has poisoned the international situation for all of these years. France then set out to reconquer its former colony, and they forgot they fought eight long years, hard, brutal years, trying to reconquer the Vietnam. You know who helped France? It was the United States of America. It came to the point that we were meeting more than 80% of the war costs. And even when France started this, this despairing of its reckless action, we did not. And in 1954, a conference was called in Geneva, and that, that agreement was reached because France had been defeated by Dien Bien Phu. But even after that, and after the Geneva Accord, we did not stop. We must face the sad fact that our government sought, in the real sense, to sabotage the Geneva Accord. Well, after the French were defeated, it looked as if independence and land reform would come through the Geneva Agreement. But instead, the United States came and started supporting a man named Diem, who turned out to be one of the most ruthless dictators in the history of the world. They set out to silence all opposition. People were brutally murdered because they raised their voices against the brutal policies of Diem. And the peasants watched and cringed as Diem ruthlessly rooted up all opposition. The peasants watched as all that was present over the United States influence and by increasing numbers of United States troops who came to help quell the insurgency that Diem method had arose. When Diem was overthrown and they had 
been happy, but the long line of military dictatorship seemed to offer no real change, especially in terms of their need for land and peace. And who are we supporting in Vietnam today? It's a man by the name of Key, Air Vice Marshal Key, who fought with the French against his own people and who said on one occasion that the greatest hero in his life is Hitler. Those who we are supporting in Vietnam today, oh, our government at the press generally won't tell us these things, but God told me this morning to tell you this. The truth must be told. The only change came from America as we increased our troop commitment in support of governments, which were singularly corrupt, inept, and without popular support. And all the while, the people read, read our leaflets and received regular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. Now they languish under our bombs and consider us not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemy. They moved sadly and apathetically as we herd them off the land of their fathers into concentration camps where minimal social needs are rarely met. They know they must move or be destroyed by our bombs. So they go, primarily women and children, at the age at which we poison their waters as we kill a million acres of their crops. They must weep as the bulldozers roar through their areas, preparing to destroy the precious trees. They wander into the towns and see thousands of thousands of children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers, soliciting for their mothers. We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. We have cooperated in the crushing of the nation's only non-communist revolutionary political force, the United Buddhist Church. This is the role our nation has taken the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible, refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investment. I'm convinced that if we are to get on with the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from things-oriented society to a people-oriented society. When machines and computers profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan of life's roadside, but that we are only an integral act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be changed so that men and women who are not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. A true revolution of values will soon look unnecessarily and uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West 
investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say, this is not just. It will look at our lands with the laden gentry of Latin America and say, this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has anything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war. This war of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injected poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of people normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Oh, my friends, if there is any one thing that we must see today, it is that there... These are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression. And out of the wounds of frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. They are saying unconsciously, as we say in one of our freedom songs, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, and morbid fear of communism, a proneness to adjust to insane injust the Western nations that instigated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the anti-revolutionaries. This has given many to feel that our Marxism has a revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow, follow through on the revolutions that we in- initiated. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into this sometimes hostile world declaring earnest hostility to provide poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful Commitment, we shall boldly change the status quo, we shall boldly change unjust mores, and thereby speed up the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain shall be made low, and the rough places shall be made plain, and the crooked places straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. A genuine revolution of values means, in the final analysis, that our loyalties must become inimical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual society. This calls for a worldwide fellowship and lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation. It is the reality, a call for an all-embracing, unconditional love of all men. This oft-understood and misinterpreted concept, so rarely dismissed by the Nazism of the world as a weak and cowardly force, 
and now become an absolute necessity for the survival of mankind. And when I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimentally weak response. I'm speaking of that force which of the great religions will see and the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. The Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautiful, summed up in the first epistle of John, let us love one another, for God is love, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfect in us. Let me say, finally, that I oppose the war in Vietnam because I love America. I speak out against this war, not in anger, but with anxiety and sorrow in my heart, and above all, with a passionate desire to see our beloved country stand as the moral example of the world. I speak out against this war because I am disappointed with America, and there can be no great disappointment if there is no great love. I'm disappointed with our failure to deal positively and forthrightly with the triple evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism. We are presently moving down a dead-end road and can lead to national disaster. America has strayed to far country for racism and militarism. The home that all too many Americans left was solidly structured idealistically. Its pillars were sound, ground in the insight of our Judeo-Christian heritage. All men are made in the image of God. All men are brothers. All men are created equal. Every man is heir to a legacy of dignity and worth. Every man has rights that are neither conferred by nor deferred from the state. They are God-given. Out of the blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. What a marvelous foundation for any home. What a glorious and healthy place to inhabit. But America strayed away, and the unnatural exclusion has brought only confusion and bewilderment. It has left hearts aching with guilt and minds distorted with irrationality. It is time for all people of conscience to call upon America to come back home. Come home, America, Omar Kayan is right. The moving finger writes in heaven writ, it moves on. I call on Washington today. I call on every man and woman of goodwill all over America today. I call on the young men of America who must make a choice today to make a stand on this issue. Tomorrow may be too late. The book may close. And don't let anybody make you think that God chooses America as his divine Masonic office to be a sort of policeman for the whole world. God has a way of standing before the nation with judgment, and it seems that I can hear him. God said to America, you're too arrogant. And if you don't change your ways, I'll rise up and break the back of your power. And I'll place it in the hands of a nation that doesn't even know my name. Be still and know that I am God. Now, it isn't easy to stand up for truth and for justice. Sometimes it means being frustrated when you tell the truth and take a stand. Sometimes it means that you will walk the streets with a burdened heart. Sometimes it means losing a job, means being abused and scorned. It may mean having a seven, eight-year-old child ask daddy, why do they have to go to jail so much? 
And I've long since learned that to be a follower of the Jesus Christ means taking up the cross. And my Bible tells me that God Friday comes before Easter, before the crown we wear. There is the cross that we must bear. Let us bear it, bear it in truth, bear it for justice, and bear it for peace. Let us go out this morning with a determination, and I have not lost faith. I'm not in despair because I know that there is a moral order. I haven't lost faith because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I can still sing, we shall overcome, because Carlisle was right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bram was right. Truth crush the earth will rise again. We shall overcome because Jane Russell Lowell was right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. We shall overcome because the Bible is right. You reap just what you sow with this faith. We will be able to hew out the mountain of despair, a stone of brotherhood. With this faith, we'll be able to speed up the day when justice will roll down like waters and righteous like a mighty stream. With this faith, we'll be able to speed up the day when the lions and the lambs will lie down together and every man will sit under his own fig and vine, but none shall be afraid because the world of Lord has spoken. With this faith, we will be able to speed up the day when all of the world we will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Nero spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. With this faith, we'll sing as we get it ready to sing now. Men will beat their swords into plowsheds and their spears into prune hooks. Any nation that will not rise up against nation, neither shall they study war anymore. And I don't know about you. I ain't going to study war no more. This is the transcript of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., a great theologian. His speech, uh... Why I Opposed the War in Vietnam, April 30th, 1967, Riverside Church, New York. I'm your host, Professor Willie Dixon, Jr. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the den unknown stands God within the shadows, keeping watch over his own. I wish you luck. I wish you joy. But I'm sure that most people will not adhere to the word of Dr. King, and they will suffer the wrath of God. I am your host, Willie Dixon, Jr., a distinguished man of color. May God bless you. Good night.